Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. So if uh, this is your first Sunday with us, and I know there's uh, some visitors here today, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we've been walking through a series on the kingdom of God is the most uh, common theme in Jesus' ministry. Uh, as he uh, spoke and went through uh, the hillsides and the synagogues, he proclaimed to the, the call of repentance to, to have a change of mind and to receive the kingdom of God because it was coming near. And so that's where we've been uh, in recent weeks. And so we're getting towards the end of our series. Uh, these next couple of weeks, we'll be wrapping it up. You know, it's, it's always been interesting to me how a word or a phrase used to mean one thing, and now it means uh, something completely different. Uh, and, and this is part of a dynamic living language. Words, uh, the meanings of words change over time. And even as I'm saying that, some of you are probably thinking of a word that means something different than it did, say, when you were a kid. You know, I was thinking about this. If I were to drop back 100 years into the 1920s, and I were to use some of the slang that I use, which is already dated because I'm 40, uh, and I was just to say, like, dude, this is cool. That, that might get me in trouble in the 1920s. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure, but uh, it would at least be not understood as readily as it would in our current day. Uh, and at the same time, I'd have to learn the slang of that era. Uh, I was looking up some slang words from the 1920s. Does anybody know what nerds means? Yeah, <laughs> what? Basically, you'd say nerds to this, as in forget this if something wasn't going right. So words, words change, right? The meaning changes, but sometimes uh, words just go away. So whether they take on a new meaning or not, um, a couple relevant terms for us as Christians is the word evangelical comes to mind. The word evangelical used to be uh, a label for Christians who took the gospel of Jesus seriously, the, the, the call to preach the good news about Jesus. When you, 30, 40 years ago, would say evangelical, that's what would come to mind. But that's not true anymore. Now the word evangelical is used more to identify a voting block, a political group. How did this happen? Well, back in the 70s and the 80s, Christian identity started getting so enmeshed with political identity. And eventually when that happens, when you mix faith and politics like that, you get politics. And we talked about this last week. Our call, our prophetic call as believers, not to be so aligned or have so much allegiance to one political party that we are blind to how those parties don't align with our faith. So evangelical, that's one of those words, right? Uh, it's, the meaning has changed. Uh, another example of a changed meaning is the term social justice, or the now popular slur, social justice warrior. Not long ago, these were actually viewed as positive terms. For example, there was a pastor in the Houston area, Pastor James Obi Sr., and in, when he passed away, the obituary for him in the Houston Chronicle was titled, Social Justice Warrior Dies. And this was a positive turn. This was in reference to his uh, work for civil rights there in the Houston area. 
Or in 2007, a little more recent even, Catholic priest David Kappa was given an award for his work in helping to reduce homelessness and develop local solutions for social problems. And he was often dubbed positively as a social justice warrior. This is only back in 2007. So now today, whether you add the warrior part or not, in many circles, the meaning has changed and social justice has actually, in some cases, become a negative. This morning, as we continue on in our series on the kingdom of God, we're going to look at how the Bible defines a particular word that is very important to the kingdom and really to our participation in the kingdom as Christians. And the word that we're going to look at this morning is justice. And this word is important for a few reasons. One is the attributes of God. One of the attributes of God is justice. Isaiah chapter 30 says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of what? Let me say that one more time. The Lord is a God of what? There we go. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So this is one of the core attributes of God. So it's important for us to know this. And because this is one of his attributes, God also loves justice. Psalm 11 says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, the upright will see his face. And so we need to talk about justice. What does this mean? How is this defined? Why does God love this? Why is this an attribute of his? Another reason we need to talk about this is our society is confused about justice. There's competing viewpoints. There's competing ideologies. And word meanings change, right? So when, the, when our society talks about justice, what do they mean? And as much as our society is confused about justice, that also, we would be ignorant to say it doesn't, it trickles into the church. And so as a result, many folks in our church, and I'm sure this morning, they're here this morning, uh, they're also, we are also confused about what true justice is. And lastly, it's important to talk about justice because justice is a core value of the kingdom of God. And that's what we've been talking about in recent weeks. Psalm 45 says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of what? Justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So like when God rules, that's what he's ruling out of, his justice. Psalm 89 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. So this morning, we're going to look at the picture of justice from the Bible. And as we do, it's my hope that we'll see more of God's heart and that he'll give us more of his. And so I'm going to pray for that specifically this morning. I hope you'll join me. Father, we live in a culture of competing values and ideologies, and the messaging is strong through our social media, through our news media, Through everything that we consume, Lord, there are so many confusing messages going on and going out. And this morning, we want to seek you. We want to know your heart for justice. We want to know your love and your compassion and your righteousness. And Father, we ask that you then, as we get to know you, that you would give us your heart. That we might walk in your ways and be participants in your kingdom, even as we live in this world that is confused. So would you bring clarity 
and hope this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the questions we might ask is, where are you getting your definition of justice? What is informing how you see the world and the injustices in the world and how to respond to that? When words change with culture, we then have to ask more questions, better questions about the meaning of those words when somebody says them. And then we have to listen better. Because in our current culture, people aren't listening, right? You say one word and you make assumptions and you run down a road before you've even gotten an understanding of what that person means. So we have to ask more questions about the meanings of words and we have to listen better. And then as Christians, we have to hold up what is being said specifically about justice to how God defines it and demonstrates it from his word. So how does the culture define justice? Depending on who you ask, you're likely to get very different views of justice. Uh, There was an article I read last year by author and pastor Tim Keller, and he unpacks four primary views of justice that we see in our secular culture today. And one or more of these uh, definitions of justice might resonate with you. And kids, because you're in here, when I say secular, that means there's no religious basis for it. They've taken this view of justice and they've separated it. it there's no God, there's no Bible, there's no religious basis. That's what we mean by secular. So uh, Pastor Keller talks about kind of four views. And if, there, if you can imagine a, continu- a continuum, like a line, where on this side, people are more about collectivist thinking. Like we're all in it together there's a, as a group. And on this side, uh, we're individualistic. It's just about me and what I do and my actions. And so on this timeline, there's kind of four different views of justice that we see. There's one view, which is that justice is basically about freedom. So that will be more individualistic. About what I get, what I, what I earn, what happens to me is most important. On the other extreme, a more of a postmodern extreme, justice is basically about power. Who's in power, who has power, who controls these things, and we want it to be spread as evenly as possible. So these are two extremes of justice, basically about freedom and about power. And another uh, picture of justice, justice is basically about fairness, that everybody should be treated kindly and should have the same rights and equality as others. And then a last viewpoint of justice, more of a utilitarian viewpoint, would be justice is basically about happiness. Hey, if I can be happy, then I am, then life is good, and everybody should have that same happiness. So freedom, fairness, happiness, power, these are four kind of common ideas of what justice looks like and should be about. And what we see with all of these aspects is they're all true aspects of justice. Freedom, fairness, happiness, and power. But here's the thing. These secular viewpoints, when they're put in silos like this, they're all incomplete pictures of justice. And biblical justice does something that none of our secular viewpoints do. It actually speaks to all of those things. It makes room for all aspects of that justice. So if the culture uh, tends to focus on just one, the Bible encompasses them all. So what does justice look like in the Bible? How does God define it? Well, first we have to go back, which is what we've been doing in this series. We have to go back 
and understand that biblical justice is rooted in the belief that every human being, you and me, are made in the image of God. That life is not accidental, it's not a cosmic coincidence, that humanity is fearfully and wonderfully made. Secular justice does not agree with that. And so our roots of justice are are in the garden, in God's good and perfect design. And so out of this foundational understanding of humanity, we know that sin is the root of injustice. Wherever evil and oppression are happening, it is the result of sinful behavior. Sin is anything that is not in line with the righteous design and ways of God. Racism, oppression, any sort of evil towards God's image bearers is counter to God's righteousness. These things are injustice. We see this reality very early in the biblical story. Genesis chapter 4, do you know the story of Cain and Abel? Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've probably heard those those names before. Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, they are brothers. And Cain is looking at his brother in a wrong way, and God notices it, and God warns him. If you do what is right, Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What God is calling Cain to do is live righteously, live in a right way. What happens? Cain doesn't do it. He disobeys God. He kills his brother. One of the very first acts of injustice and of murder that we see recorded in the Bible. And he pays the penalty for that injustice. Now, we don't have time this morning to survey all of Scripture, but biblical justice, that is justice that is linked to the character and nature of God, is the only form of justice that addresses all the concerns of secular justice. And it's the only one that offers an objective and unchanging foundation for justice because that's God. God, his justice is based on the moral, absolute, unchanging, and righteous nature of his character. As Aaron was talking about earlier, the rock of ages, unchanging. So when we think of justice, we as Christians know that it is rooted in the unchanging character of God. We also have to be reminded that our standard for justice is the righteousness of God. So what does this righteousness look like? How does God's justice work? There's kind of two primary aspects of God's justice that we see on display in the scriptural narrative. The first is the justice of God punishes the wicked. Isaiah chapter 13 says, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Ezekiel 7 says, I will not look on you with pity. I will not spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and for the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Later on, the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin, like what you get paid for sinning, is death. There is a consequence for evil behavior. So when most of us think of justice, this is what we think of. We have a system in America called what? The justice 
system, right? Where those who have done wrong have to give an account for their wrongdoing. And this last week, we saw how that works as the most high-profile murder trial in the last year came to a close. Justice was done. The wrong was, there was a penalty paid for it. And so this aspect of justice, punishment of the wicked, is rooted in the righteousness of God. When we reject his design, his purposes, his ways, we put ourselves under judgment and we subject ourselves to justice. This is how God's justice works and this is reflected, even if imperfectly, in the world around us. Uh, Proverbs 21 nails it where it says, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. This is a key aspect of God's justice seen throughout Scripture. But it's not the only kind of justice we see in the Bible. In fact, there's another aspect of justice that's just as prominent in Scripture. And actually, it's demonstrated and commanded to be acted out even more so than this type of justice, than the justice of punishment. The second aspect of justice we see is the justice of God that restores. You probably remember the story of the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt and lived under an immense oppression. And at one point, they even had to deal with the decree of infanticide toward their own people. So how would God respond to this injustice of the, his people in the country of Egypt? God picks a guy named Moses who will be an instrument of his justice. And Exodus chapter 3 records this interaction that he has with him. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, if you know the story, what eventually happens is that God does what he says, and the king of Egypt experiences the punishment of God, and the people experience the restoration of God, both through being freed and through being given a new home. And so, so throughout Scripture, this aspect of justice, justice as restoration, is central to the commands of God to his people. And if you read the Old Testament, you see this just leaping off the page, where God says, stand against oppression, take care of the oppressed, such as the orphan, the widows, and the immigrants, over and over and over. Take care of the poor, take care of the orphan, take care of the widow. Why? The most marginalized, oppressed folks in society. And so as an act of justice, the justice of God is a restorative justice. And it's rooted, again, in the original design of the garden, based on the equality of humanity. We are all made in the image of God. So all people are to be treated accordingly. And when people aren't treated as image bearers of God, this is called injustice. And so the restorative aspect of justice causes us as believers to see things like oppression and discrimination and marginalization as something we need to stand against. 
And we need to work to undo these things and to bring restoration to those in need. And that's what we see in the, the biblical picture of Exodus. That God stood against the oppression and he restored his people. He gave them the land and the blessings that he promised. One of the most beautiful pictures of this that we see is in uh, one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, there's actually laws in culture now based on this parable that Jesus gave. In this story, there's a, uh, a Jewish man that is beaten and left within an inch of his life on the road. And as he's lying there, literally in a ditch, a pastor walks by and ignores him. Well, the, the Bible says a priest, but it's the same thing. Another religious leader walks by and sees him and doesn't do a thing. And then a Samaritan comes. And the significance of this is often lost on us, but Samaritans and Jews don't associate. And what does a Samaritan do? Is he puts him on his own donkey. He dresses his wounds. He pays his bills. In the face of injustice, there is a restorative justice that is displayed by this Samaritan. And what does Jesus say to the people that he tells the story to? You go and do the same. This is how we are to live. I came across a video this last week from a group um, called Prager University. And Prager University has this massive online following. And the title was, Social Justice Isn't Justice. So my ears perked up. And it was clearly directed at Christians. So I was curious about it. So I watched it. And when I heard in this five-minute very well-produced video with you know, great animations and all that. What I heard was the most biblically illiterate claims about justice I've probably ever heard. <laughs> the speaker tried to relegate justice in the Bible to only being about legal punishment. And not just ignoring restorative justice, but actually trying to separate it and demonize it, ultimately declaring social justice isn't in the Bible simply because the word social never appears. My jaw dropped as I heard this because they were trying to build a case using Scripture while absolutely ignoring Scripture. Really what this video was doing was adopting a similar narrow viewpoint of justice no different than what secular ideologies do. And this was astounding to me because God literally gave laws to his people that would ensure just practices in society. Another way you could put that is social justice. In Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, maybe you didn't know this, but God tells his people, hey, yo, those of you that have that have farms and produce, I want you at the end of harvest season to leave some of it in the field so that those that are oppressed, those immigrants, those widows, those that can't fend for themselves can come and eat. In Leviticus 25, God makes a rule, a law called the year of Jubilee that every 50 years, debts would be wiped out. Land would be restored. Slaves would be free. That there would be a sense, at least for that year, of justice in societies. Social justice, economic justice, racial justice is clearly throughout the Bible. 
And while the exact phrase may not be there, all of these facets are a picture of the restorative justice of God. Now, to be fair, we have to ask people what they mean when they say words. In our current day, not everyone means the same thing when they say social justice. What do you mean? How does that work? What's it based on? We need to ask those questions. And while our culture's definition of social justice might not always be linked to the gospel, I can tell you this, the gospel always has social implications. It always works itself out. In real, that's why we're talking about the kingdom of God. How does this work in our lives? So when we look at the heart and actions of God, we see a God who will stand against the wicked, those who would cheat, bribe, oppress, and murder. And we see a God with a heart of compassion toward the people he made. And if you belong to him, then your definition of justice needs to be centered on the character of God and led by his righteousness. Micah 6.8 is one of my favorite passages if my little clicker can work. Jude, can you move it to Micah 6.8 for me? I don't know why this isn't working. There you go. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What is wholly unhelpful in our current cultural movement is for Christians to adopt the slurs of our day, calling folks woke or social justice warrior or Marxist simply because they are trying, even if imperfectly, to do justice. What is powerful, however, is when the people of God pursue the righteousness of God and demonstrate the justice of God, not with empty words or an angry Facebook post, but with prayer and with action. And our church family has done that. And I know many of you are doing this. This time last year, every Tuesday, we were handing out hundreds of meals to folks in our community that were suffering. They lost their jobs because of COVID. They were having a hard time making ends meet. And many of you sprung into action to help feed those that were in need. Last year, as many of my good friends were really wrestling with the racial injustice that they were seeing in our culture, Jessica and I and our family decided to march in solidarity with them and many other Christians in Renton, hundreds of Christians in Renton, and we prayed for our nation. We prayed for racial righteousness. And we worshiped together at Liberty Park downtown. It wasn't just anger. It wasn't just a Facebook post. We wanted to walk with our brothers and sisters that were being hurt. So ultimately, our Christian understanding of justice is rooted in the saving work of Jesus for our sin. Because here's the truth. Our sin is an injustice towards God. It is a disregard for his righteousness. And because of our sin, God has every right to judge us by his righteous standard. And the verdict for our sin is guilty. But Jesus offers us hope. 
Matthew chapter 12 says this, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations put their hope. Do you see the justice of God on display here? In verse 18 where it says, He will proclaim justice to the nations. This connects back to Proverbs 25. If those nations, those countries are not acting justly, they better watch out. In verse 20, we see the restorative justice of God. Those are hurting and at the end of their selves are offered hope. In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is the restorative justice of God in action. Jesus actually took the punishment of your sins on himself and paid the debt on the cross. He then, after taking the punishment of of your sins, he then fills your life with his righteousness. By the world's standards, you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, but God loves you so much that he wants you to experience his restorative justice so that he took on that punishment so that you can take the restoration and the blessing. So here's the promise of the kingdom. The promise of the kingdom is if you have lived today, I'm talking about you sitting in the pews, If you have lived an unrighteous, evil life, you can be forgiven and restored. What a beautiful picture of the justice of God. And if you have been wronged, if you've been abused, if you've been oppressed, you can know that God takes evil seriously. He's going to deal with it on your behalf. It will be dealt with once and for all. And you, despite the suffering you've been through, will be able to experience the blessing of his restoration. In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is a beautiful picture of the justice of God that is very personal for us. And so it's my hope this morning that you would receive it, that you'd receive the blessing of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, that he would take on your sins and that he would instead fill you with his righteousness, not a righteousness you can earn on your own. And as a church, I pray that we would, as imperfectly as we can, (laughs) as imperfectly as we are, I should say, that we would pursue the justice of God, that we would be tangible demonstrations of this spiritual reality. So I want to pray for that for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Let's stand together as we do this. Father, in a world of competing ideas and ever-changing words, would you ground us in your truth? The truth that we are very deeply flawed. We're, We're a hot mess. But that you love us that you would come down and you would take the penalty of our sin on yourself so that we might be restored. 
Father, I pray this morning for anyone in here who has not done that, has not received this restorative justice, this promise of salvation to be freed from the sins of the past, that today would be the day that say, yes, that's what I want. I want to know Jesus. I want to be freed from this. I want his righteousness in my life. And if that is you this morning, we want to pray for you specifically after church. We'd love to stand with you as you receive that promise from God. And Lord, I pray for our church in these times where words are thrown around casually, where people are continuing to be marginalized and oppressed, where we are fighting each other over definitions, Lord God, and missing completely the truth of your calling. Pray that you'd wake us up, Lord. Lord, that we would be ambassadors of your hope, that we'd be instruments of your justice, Lord God, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our cities. Lord, we would bring with us the promise of ultimate justice that is found in Jesus. We thank you for your great love for us, Lord. May we, like the Good Samaritan, extend mercy and show compassion to all around us. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.com dot church.